1: Hello and welcome to Outward, Slate's podcast about queer life, politics, culture, and this month, our month, anything else we damn well please. I'm Brian Louder, an editor at Slate, and I just saw Grace Jones live for the first time last night, and she hula-hooped for like two songs straight without stopping, and I'm not sure my pride is going to get any better than that. (laughs) Y'all, <laughs> I think that's it. Well, maybe except for these outward shows that we're doing. Then that shows, plural, that we have planned for you this month. As we mentioned back in May, throughout June, we're going to be bringing you three extra shorter Pride episodes each Wednesday, in addition to our usual big show on the 21st. Christina, Jules, and I each picked our own subjects and guests for these, and the lineup is very exciting, so definitely check your feeds regularly so you don't miss out. Before I get to this week's topic, I just wanted to give you a little reminder that we want to hear from you. That's right, you, the one being so cute and lovely listening to the best LGBTQ pod on the scene about how you're celebrating Pride in this difficult year for queer and trans family. I know my focus is going to be on demanding my space in the world this Pride. Some of that's going to be through dancing with the gays, but I'll also be marching in the annual NYC Drag March which is the kind of ultra-queer, unpermitted, space-claiming, glittery protest that I feel is really essential right now. We want to hear what you're doing, or maybe not doing, to celebrate or mourn or otherwise mark this Pride season. Send us a voice memo at outwardpodcast@slate.com and we'll play a few on the big show later this month. All right, regular listeners will probably know that I'm one of those annoying gays in a thruple, or as we prefer to call it, a triad, and it's coming up on six years. But before and on top of that, I'm married to the partner I had first, something we did back in 2013 after Domen was struck down with a lot of political ambivalence, and primarily for health insurance reasons. Now we're thinking about what formalizing our current relationship would look like, and while obviously we can do whatever we want ceremonially, The government, as we've been told by a few kind but sort of shrugging lawyers, doesn't really offer much beyond forming an LLC, which isn't very romantic. I share all of that by way of explaining my keen interest in our guest today, John G. Colhane. John is a family law expert, professor, and beloved slate contributor, and his new book, out in May from the University of California Press, is titled More Than Marriage, Forming Families After Marriage Equality. It's a fascinating tour of the legal statuses like domestic partnerships and civil unions that emerged on the way to marriage equality, and an eloquent argument for a more capacious sort of choose-your-own-adventure approach to family law that could accommodate the far wider and richer range of how people actually form family units and relationships of care in the modern world. Like, say, throuples, maybe. (laughs) John, welcome to Outward. It's such a pleasure to have you here for Pride Month.
0: Oh thanks. I'm so happy to be here.
1: So I think maybe just as a place to start, you know, obviously your work is in this area and family law, but can you tell us a little about the personal story of how you came to write this book? You know, why did you feel called to think about how the law deals in family arrangements and as you titled the book argue for something you know more than marriage
0: so i was very much involved in writing and thinking about the marriage equality movement for personal reasons as well as political reasons so my husband and i uh, entered into a civil union back in 2000 in vermont very shortly after that status became available and at the time i wrote an article uh, criticizing it, because I felt like what it really did was to kind of emphasize that really all civil union was, as opposed to marriage, was pure discrimination, in the sense that you were willing to give all of the benefits, rights, and obligations of marriage, but there was still this hesitancy about calling it marriage. And so it wasn't like they were coming up with good policy arguments against the unions of same-sex couples, which would at least would have been something to debate. Instead, it was like... Like, we concede all of that, but we still don't want to call you married. And I thought, well, this just really exposes that marriage has this kind of powerful social resonance that yeah. is is so deeply rooted that even people that are willing to provide the rights and benefits aren't willing to call it marriage. And so as I started thinking about civil unions, and I wrote several uh You know, law journal articles about civil unions and actually some writing for Slate for kind of a broader audience on these same issues. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, you know, yeah, this is it's important to get the rights and benefits, but, you know, we're leaving out all kinds of other people.
1: In the introduction, you sort of offer three problems that you see with marriage being the kind of end-all be-all of our current legal structure, or at least the way the law deals with families. The the first of which is like, you put it, uh, marriage is too bossy, which I think is a, a a wonderful phrase. Can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, the idea of marriage being too bossy is uh, while it's true that people can enter into prenuptial agreements uh, to get around some of the default uh, rules of marriage, most couples don't, particularly most couples in first marriages. Uh, you know, prenuptial agreements are much more common for, for couples that have been married and, mm-hmm. and want to safeguard their assets. Maybe they have children from previous marriage or relationship, but marriage, uh, It creates all of these default rules. And we might question whether some of those really are kind of necessary. uh, And, you know, in terms of what happens when the marriage dissolves, mostly the law is concerned with. What happens when these relationships end that's where the, that's where the principal interest is uh, so I think that's you know that's an area where I saw you know real problems uh, in that you have to sort of go out of your way to, to choose your own adventure if you're married and not only that but courts for reasons I somewhat understand are somewhat skeptical depending on the state are more or less skeptical of these prenuptial agreements and the reason it's somewhat understandable is they tend to really penalize the economically weaker party um and the economically stronger party has kind of a uh a big power advantage, right, over yeah. the other party in terms of even negotiating these things and then just in terms of how they're negotiated, right? That's one of the big problems that I see is that marriage, uh, unlike other kinds of contracts people enter into, it's kind of shrink wrap, right? I mean, it basically tells you what you get and what you don't get.
1: Yeah, so you make this really interesting point or you sort of invite us to look at the path of these other statuses like domestic partnerships and civil unions as almost like an unintentional laboratory of sorts for for how we can think about other legal arrangements aside from marriage you also call them at a certain point uh consolation prizes is one way or that's (laughs) what people thought about it right but maybe that's the right um before we get into the specifics of, of each one of those Give us just a little broad overview of of that argument and, and how you sort of are are maybe revisioning that path to marriage yeah. equality as something useful. Yeah.
0: You're quite right. I mean, they they started life as a way to kind of incrementally gain the benefits of marriage. So when I talk to uh the couple from, from California, they had no illusions. This is a domestic that, partnership. This is a them. domestic partnership. Thank you. Yes. They had no illusions that they were going to be able to achieve marriage equality, right? They were working on a very small scale and they were interested in getting a specific benefit. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were pretty radical in their politics and they were activists, but they were also very practical. And they had seen what had happened in states where people had actually challenge the marriage laws and not only did they didn't they win but they kind of went down in flames I think a lot of people
1: may not know this but there, people did actually try this in the 70s that's yeah.
0: right the early 70s and it was in the wake of Stonewall when people were feeling like and at least one couple did it as kind of uh, an experiment in the deconstruction of marriage mm-hmm. but other couples were sort of more in the traditional mode of this looks like inequality to us but courts didn't even really have have the vocabulary to understand i mean it was too far out of bounds i think for any courts to take seriously and so you know these guys uh said you know what we really need is health benefits so we're going to start small and they came up with the term domestic partnership and it wasn't completely out of the blue when they looked at uh, a California Supreme Court case from just a few years earlier, the uh, Marvin versus Marvin case, where the California Supreme Court became the first uh, state court of last resort, state Supreme Court, to say, you know, even if a couple's not married, there are certain expectations that come from that and the court was willing to recognize that under certain circumstances either there was an implied agreement or maybe there were some equitable principles like someone had gotten a benefit and the other person had you know had sort of done all this work that was uncompensated right there were these arguments about you know equity and fairness and they were able to bring those this couple was able to bring those to bear on their uh, local uh, city council. And it took a while. As they were telling me, they bored them to death. Every question they they were <laughs> presented with, they had a very practical, very common sense answer. And ultimately, you know, Berkeley became the first place uh, to enact this. What's interesting from my perspective, or I hope from the perspective of the uh, readers, which mm-hmm. are soon to number in the millions, at first they were only... Concerned about couples that couldn't marry, about same sex couples primarily. And by the time the measure was enacted, it also covered anyone, any couple, any adult couple, including couples that could have married. So, right from the start, okay, you could see that what would become the marriage equality movement was already. Sort of expanding in ways that mm-hmm. maybe even this couple didn't anticipate. And what I love about the domestic partnership experiment, I think this is the the, the best uh, example of an experiment is it started on the local level. And localities sort of were popping up all over the country like whack-a-moles that wouldn't be knocked down. Uh, (laughs) They started springing up all over the place, and then there started to become uh, statewide domestic partnership laws, which conferred in California at least only a small subset of the benefits, and then expanded over the years to allow more and more benefits, but were only available to gay couples. Or to straight couples where at least one person was over 62, and that had only to do with social security benefits, which I won't get into because uh, your listeners don't deserve that. (laughs) Oh, and then also, uh, importantly, uh, corporations started offering things that they call domestic partnerships. So you had it coming from the private sector as well, and they were all a little bit different. And some of them included opposite sex couples, some of them didn't. Um, And so there was a whole plethora of different different uh, domestic partnership rules and statuses. And it was entirely possible for people to be in more than one of those at a time. That was out there. And right away, you had this sort of creativity that was leading toward marriage equality, but was already kind of It it turned out the walls of that movement were maybe more permeable than people realized at the time. So that was interesting to me. And then civil unions were super interesting in the sense that these three couples in Vermont applied for marriage licenses Uh, They were denied by the lower court. The Vermont Supreme Court takes up the opinion and unanimously decides that there's an inequity here. But the creative piece of it, which at the time I decried, but now I see as a brilliant compromise, uh, was, you know, you have to give these couples all of the benefits of marriage. In fact, there's no other argument because we already have a state where same-sex couples can adopt and we recognize they can be good parents and families. And, Mm. you know, in fact, the states that were more progressive, right, had less room to argue against it because their other laws were sort of all recognizing the, you know, the status and the ability of same-sex couples to succeed. But what they said was, but the legislature doesn't have to call it marriage. Um, They can call it, you know marriage with one R if they want they can they can call it late for dinner whatever they want to do they can do but they have to uh, give all the rights and benefits and in one of the most sort of uh, real politic things i've seen from a court the uh, chief justice who wrote the opinion said you know in Alaska and Hawaii, where courts ordered marriage, the consequence was a state constitutional amendment that overrode what the courts had done. And the court was really concerned about that possibility and thought that giving it some other name might, might take some of the heat out of it. And they were quite right. I mean, there was a movement for a constitutional amendment, but you've got a pretty progressive state in Vermont. As John Stewart said, a state made entirely out of hemp fibers. So it happened mm-hmm. in 2000. My now husband and I uh, civilly united a- in 2000.
1: Let's pause here for a moment and uh, take a short break. We'll be right back. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase
0: necessary. VTW.
1: Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I wanted to ask you about that. Actually, this is one moment in the book where you write sort of personally about right. your experience. And um, you, you were an out-of-stater. I think you were, were you living in Pennsylvania then as well. That's right. Yes. In Philly,
0: where I still am.
1: Yeah, right. So, you know, you're out-of-stater as you go up to Vermont. This does not extend at that point outside of the state. So why? I'd love to hear just a little bit about why you did that and how you how your thinking about it sort of evolved over time.
0: I would say more than 90% of it was to get whatever state-approved recognition we could. And maybe it's the lawyer in me, right? (laughs) Because who cares, right? I mean, you could just do a ceremonial thing in your backyard or whatever, like a lot of people did. But I sort of uh, had come to see this as an important step. And only later did I think... Oh, maybe my employer will recognize this and give health benefits and maybe mm-hmm. some educational benefits to my family. At that time, we didn't have kids. And that is what happened. Within a year, uh, right. my employer was actually pretty progressive and said, yeah, you know, these two are as committed as any married couple. But that's not what we were thinking. And I knew it wouldn't be portable. I mean, I recognized that. And in fact, it caused problems for a lot of people in the sense that if you were civilly united and then they remove the civil union status later, then what were you supposed to do if
1: This happened a lot after marriage equality, right? Because a lot of states, you know, repealed those those, options. That's right. That's right. Right.
0: Right. I knew a lesbian couple from New Jersey, which also had a civil union law. I went to their, you know, their reception. It was a lot of fun. There was much dancing. (laughs) And a year later, one of them fell for somebody else and Mm -hmm. she wanted to get the civil union dissolved. And it was unclear whether you could do that in New Jersey because they had a slightly different law at that point. And so they were told one of them would have to move to Vermont for six months. And I said, you know, that's A, that's crazy. And B, (laughs) I bet New Jersey would dissolve your civil union because they were pretty progressive. And they did. But there were all these uncertainties around it because it wasn't Marriage it conferred all the state benefits, right? But none of the federal benefits, and that's still true, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, and uh, I have to do a little bit of a digression here. There was the uh, Defense of Marriage Act at the federal level which basically meant there wouldn't be federal benefits for gay and lesbian couples, even if they were married within their state. So that actually provided some cover for the Vermont Supreme court and the Vermont legislature to say, we're equalizing the benefits, even though civil unions weren't marriage,
1: Mm.
0: even marriage wasn't marriage for gay and lesbian couples. So that talk about unintended consequences, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what happened there. And then, the most important thing, from my perspective, uh, is what happened in the state of Colorado, where yeah, they went yeah. through three, a three-step process. Right. So, uh, and I had a nice long conversation with a state senator from Colorado, Pat Stedman, who was one of the architects of what became the Designated Beneficiary Agreement
1: I just have to say that, you know, that may sound sort of dull on its yeah. face, but your uh, enthusiasm and excitement about this and the book is so palpable and infectious. And so I really want our listeners to, to pay attention to this because it is it's a pretty thrilling idea. And I had never heard of it before, uh, before reading this. And, and you And you really think of it as, in some ways, the solution to a lot of the messiness and inequities of these earlier models. So please, yeah, tell us about Colorado.
0: Yeah, it's so exciting. So it's more exciting. Well, it's already exciting, but it's like you know, triply exciting, thrice as exciting. I don't know uh, (laughs) when we talk about what it could be, right? So uh, Pat Stedman, the state senator, was responding to constitutional amendment in Colorado that prohibited same-sex marriage. These were all these were all over the place, right? He looked with a couple of other people at. Uh, different models for granting some of the rights and benefits of marriage and things like the civil union, the domestic partnership, but also this weird creature out of Hawaii called the reciprocal beneficiary which allowed people to uh, you know designate someone else to get certain rights and benefits and they they cobbled together this creation called the designated beneficiary agreement law mm-hmm. and yes it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue but <laughs> it it's it's a fantastic idea and what it does so imagine going to a restaurant with, where everything is a la carte right, right. and so There's a whole list of things on this menu and any two people, unless they're married or in a civil union, which I'll get to in a minute, but any two adults, they can be related for that matter or not, can enter into one of these agreements. And what it does is it sets up a series of of options. So, for Mm -hmm. example, uh, one of the options is do you want this person to have power of attorney for you let's say when you become incapacitated and i actually think about this also from a personal perspective my mother is 89 and she is in you know luckily she's in great health physically and cognitively she's doing wonderfully but she uh might want me to have power of attorney when she becomes incapacitated right but I wouldn't want her to have power of attorney for me. I would want my my husband to have that, and not her. It, that would make more sense. So the way it would work is, she can check that off as something she wants to do, and in the other side, on the opposing column, I can check no, and it goes on like this, right? Yeah, you uh, have you
1: have this great uh, figure in the book where you can see this. It's literally just you initial, you know, one yes. side or the other, like all the way down for all. Of That's
0: sides. right that's right and it's all kinds of things like you know ability to access a bank account and this can cause all kinds of problems and in fact you know tragically pat stedman's uh partner died not too long after this law went into effect he had a very aggressive cancer and mm-hmm. pat was stedman still so he was able to go into the bank and just show them this agreement which you file just like a marriage uh license or anything mm-hmm. else it's filed with the state and it has the same authority and He said the bank didn't know what to do with it and they called their lawyers and they said, no, that's a thing. That's a real thing. You You should acknowledge that. Um, And so there's a whole sort of list of things that you can do. The problem with it is, or the limitation I should say, um, is that you can only be in one of these agreements – Right. And if you were married or if you're in a civil union, which which Colorado also did a civil union law subsequent to the uh, designated beneficiary law, kind of on the way station to marriage, then those documents automatically supersede your your designated beneficiary agreement. Well, why? I mean, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me. So to go back to the example of my mom, yeah, I'm married to somebody else, but even whether I was married before this or after, I should be able to enter into this agreement with her. It would save a lot of money on estate planning documents, etc. And so as long as they're not inconsistent and these days with electronic filing and cross-referencing, it would be easy to spot any inconsistencies and, and, and make sure that you had some mechanism for dealing with those. And the other thing is you should be able to be in more than one of them. So if I wasn't married, for instance, I might want someone to have power of attorney. That's not my husband, or even if I was married for that matter. And why can't I enter into a separate agreement with that person? So, I think it has tremendous potential. It does. And, yeah. I mean,
1: speaking again as – I mean, looking at this from the perspective of someone in a three-person relationship, like that model would be so – like we we have talked to lawyers about the various sort of things that we can do, and it's, it is more than the LLC thing I was joking about. But there's not that much, and it's very complicated and expensive. This would be such an easier way to go about – arranging yes. all of those very important things. And so it, it's, it is yes. it is really thrilling if you, you know, I hope people will pick up the book to look at this because it is really exciting. Thanks. You know, I
0: wanted to talk a little bit about the three or more person relationship situation sure. because I'm very sympathetic to it. And, you know, I think at this point, um, the idea that the that the government would allow three people to marry in the same sense as two is very far off. And yeah. it has a lot to do with really practicalities like federal benefits and things like that. But that doesn't mean that people in these relationships should be ignored by the legal yeah. system. And there's all yeah. kinds of people that are ignored by the legal system. So one of the examples I use in the book is a... A gay man and a lesbian who uh years ago they both decided they wanted to have kids and so mm-hmm. they had kids with each other, but they were still gay and lesbian. In fact they said no one believed at least the their, their relatives didn't believe them. It's like, well you're you know, you're in this relationship and you have kids together, so obviously you're straight. It's like, no, really. Really. <laughs> I'm, <Right>. I'm gay. <laughs> so so uh but then what happened was they got married because of the health benefits. She was, uh, her name was Ann Quinn. She was staying home uh, with the kids, working Mm -hmm. part-time or something, didn't have health benefits, right? And so they got married. And by the way, that's not what they wanted to do. And they said if there had been something like a civil union or domestic, part or something like this, where they could designate the other person, one other person to receive health benefits, they would have done it. Then what happens is, She meets a woman and they get into a relationship. And they had this agreement that they could do that. They didn't want to put that intimate side of their lives with another adult aside, right? But this third person, this woman was, she was a school teacher. And so she was the one picking the kids up after school and doing their homework with them. And every single step of the way, she had to get all kinds of permission to like pick the kids up and do this and who are you? And again, this kind of a thing could really make that so much easier. You know, Uh, you could basically say this person has... You know, I give this person authority to, you know, deal with everyday decisions involving the children or something like that. And obviously that's a little more complicated because kids are involved. But, but you get the idea that there's a lot more that could be done in terms of recognizing and supporting these relationships.
1: Yeah, I mean, another... Which another, exist, you know. They exist, that's right. What, no, they, that's they what's they important. Much... It doesn't yeah.
0: matter, you know, people are like, oh, this will destroy marriage. It's like, first of all, marriage is pretty resilient. And, and to the extent that it isn't, it's nothing to do with any of this, right? Right. Uh, and also, uh, there's real people in real relationships that mm-hmm. need legal yeah. structure.
1: There, I mean, another another example that you give that I think is really striking is the sisters. The pseudonyms are April and May Doe. That you give them, and they've lived together their entire lives. They had a sort of complicated childhood where it sort of put them on a path to maybe being like this we don't have to get into all of that but like you you detail that in the book and they've made a life together where they care for each other and that's that's what they've done but of course they're older now and they're coming to the end uh of their lives and looking at you know things like estate taxes and like all of all the things that kind of come at end of life um, talk a bit about that that example and, and how this uh, designated beneficiary agreement might help them. You
0: know? Yeah, I found this to be the most int- – and I think a lot of people that have read the book have found this to be the most – maybe compelling story. And unfortunately, one of them has just passed away. Oh, okay. uh, they spent their entire lives together. They never had any... Uh, one of them may have had a relationship with a guy for a while. But basically, in every respect except for the sexual one, they are intimate. And I interviewed them for a good long time in person. And you would be hard-pressed to find any couple, gay or straight or whatever that was more kind of in sync uh it was interesting because they talked a little bit about the windsor case and for listeners that are not familiar with that that was the case that led to uh, the supreme court declaring that the defense of marriage act was unconstitutional this was a a relationship between two women when one died the other one had to pay uh, millions of dollars in estate tax uh, whereas if they had been legally married, there would have been no estate tax because of the spousal exemption. Mm-hmm. And so Edie Windsor brought a claim all the way to the Supreme Court and succeeded. And that's what got them to think about this. They said, wait a minute. Yeah. you know, they're Yeah. They're married, two women, I guess because it was two women, it made them think this way, and we're not. And not that we want to get married because we don't think that is the appropriate definition of our relationship, right? But there should be some analogous protection, I noted that in some states, if they were first cousins, they could marry,
1: mm-hmm, right?
0: Mm-hmm. But not sisters. So the whole thing, there's a sort of an anomaly there that the law is has really not dealt with in any kind of consistent way, or really at all. You know, you could say, I designate this person to receive the benefit of the estate tax exemption. Mm-hmm. Now, of course... I think there are bigger problems with the estate tax exemption, but those those are kind of separate and apart from what yeah. I'm discussing. They spent so much time and money trying to structure their legal relationship in a way that kind of mirrored uh, marriage.
1: You're starting to get into this, but sort of in the final chapter of the book, you make this rousing case for a, I think you call it a turbocharged approach to this that, that you would like to see sort of adopted nationally. Could you tell us a little bit about your, your sort of vision for that expanded turbocharged version?
0: Yeah. Essentially, the idea is you should be able to enter into as many of these agreements as make sense for your life, you know, to the extent that any two of them are not inconsistent in particulars, which, again, you could have a way of solving through, you know, through electronic uh, cross-referencing. Right. Right. And you shouldn't be disqualified just because you are you know, married to another person. People are in all kinds of relationships. And it's to me, it's kind of baffling uh, why you would... It's not baffling at the time it was created, it made sense. But now I think it makes a lot more sense to kind of expand this. And the other piece of it is because family law is very much state by state, You'd want to create sort of a model piece of legislation. Then each state would adopt maybe with, with some kind of modularity where there could be certain options a state would have. And then it would be kind of transportable, right, um, between the states. You know, right now, sort of marriage is the only status that's reliably uh, portable. And I, I would hope that something like this would sort of follow in that vein.
1: Yeah. So uh, that's about all the time we have for the conversation. Unfortunately, there is so much more in the book that we could talk about. Um, But before you leave, John, we are asking all of our special guests this month to give our listeners a pride agenda recommendation. So this is just like our usual updates to the gay agenda that our listeners know and love. uh, But this is with seasonal pride flair. So, uh, John, what did you bring for us and our listeners today?
0: I wanted to talk just for a minute about drag and how much I really Mm. think that we should be supporting uh, drag performers. When my kids were little, we stayed at a bed and breakfast, and one of the guys who owned it had been this drag performer, and he put on this video uh, for my kids, and they were like five or six, and it was hilarious. (laughs) And I think we sort of need to push back against this whole idea that, you know, drag is pernicious. And it really is sort of not even so indirectly part of this larger anti-trans agenda, right? One thing I wanted to recommend is, you know, if you go back to my favorite playwright, Shakespeare, I recommend to your audience, there are actually two versions of Twelfth Night playing right now in Philadelphia, two different theaters, and it is so Trent I mean, basically, I don't know how he got away with this, but you could only have male actors at the time, right? right? Uh, so this male actor is playing a female who then dresses as a male in order to to get through, right? And then at one point, uh, the duke that she's working for flirts with him, her, him, pretending it's a woman to to sort of try out his his, his <laughs> lines. And you can't even keep it—no pun intended—you can't even keep it straight. Right. I mean, right. and and that's right. what I think. We should be celebrating. Go to a giraffe show. Invite your friends and just yeah. and have fun with it. And, you know, if you read some of these laws literally, you know, a 12th night would be banned. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't have mm-hmm. it in a public park where a child might see it, which is obviously blatantly unconstitutional. But they don't care. They're doing it for political reasons. Right. And we need to push back. So that's my...
1: I love that. That's
0: that's my agenda.
1: (laughs) That is a wonderful Pride agenda. I I heartily second that, and I will uh, be going to see a few drag shows myself this month. Um, That's such a great note to leave it on. Uh, My guest has been John Colhane, and his book is titled More Than Marriage, Forming Families After Marriage Equality. It's worth a read. Whatever kind of family you find yourself in this Pride season, John, thank you so, so much for joining us.
0: It was such a pleasure, and thanks for having me.
1: And that's it for this special Pride mini-episode. As always, please send us feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at Slate.com, or you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. Just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you will get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that, go to Slate.com slash Outward Plus. June Thomas is our producer and the friend with portable benefits we should all aspire to be. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Definitely tell your friends about it. Consider it a pride mission to tell your friends about it. It would make us so happy. And rate and review the show, of course, so that others can see how much you love it and find it. And again, please drop us a voice memo at outwardpodcastslate.com to tell us how you'll be celebrating or maybe not celebrating or whatever you'll be doing for Pride in this really difficult year. We really, really want to hear your voices. We'll be back in your feeds with another special episode from us so soon as well as queer content from other site Podcasts. So keep a close eye on this feed. Until then, stay strong, stay gay, and happy.